we are taking time to address the topic was Darwin right after all? Trying to contrast what Charles Darwin proposed or put forward with what the Bible says. The year 2009, this year, is the 200th anniversary of uh, Charles Robert Darwin, time since he was born, about 150 years since he first published his book on the origin of species. So we felt it was appropriate to talk about it, analyze what he presented to the world and see if it still holds. As many of you are aware, Charles Darwin was, a, was an English naturalist who proposed that all species of life have evolved from common ancestors through a process which he called natural selection. And uh, this theory of descent through modification, modification through variation and selection is now widely accepted in the scientific community and it really forms the basis of what is known as the theory of evolution or evolutionary theory. And Darwinism as a movement has become pretty predominant uh, globally around the world. Now before we get into the talk this morning, I just want to set some perimeters on things that we will be addressing and things we will not be addressing given the limitation of time that we have together this morning. Some things that we will not be addressing at the top, at the top this morning, uh, we will not be talking about the modern evolution theory or evolutionary synthesis, about the earth being three to four billion years old and how the entire process of evolution took place. We will also not be addressing theistic evolution, which is a form of guided evolution, believe in a God who caused evolution. We will also not be addressing intelligent design that says that we don't believe in a God, but we do believe that there was some intelligence that guided the process of evolution. And we will not be addressing the Big Bang Theory, because all of these require several uh, amounts of time, individual amounts of time, so these may be addressed in the future. What we will be addressing and focusing on in our time together this morning is essentially what did Darwin say and does it hold today? Just to give a little brief background about Charles Darwin, he was uh, raised in England as uh, or in a Christian environment. He went to church, read the Bible, and uh, when he was about 16, his father sent him to Edinburgh University to pursue medical studies. But while at the university in those three years, he was spending more time investigating nature and other things and neglecting his own medical studies. So his father thought it was very good to take him out of the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh University and now send him to Christ College at the University of Cambridge to do a Bachelor of Arts degree in order to become an Anglican priest. So at the age of 19, he was sent to the University of Cambridge. But even there, he became a good friend of the botany professor John Stevens and other leading naturalists who encouraged his passion for natural science. And while he was doing that on the side, he finished, he graduated in 1831 with a Bachelor of Arts. He did very well uh, at, the age of, at the age of 22. The same year, in 1831, because of his intense interest and passion as a naturalist, he had the opportunity to go on a five-year voyage on Edgemus Beagle that crossed, that left England, crossed the coastline of South America to the Galapagos Islands, over into Australia, down to Cape Town, South Africa, and all the way back to England. So he, sent, he spent five years on this voyage, during which he collected a lot of specimens, he observed a lot of things, uh, in all these various locations, sent information back to England, wrote a lot of papers, documented his ideas, and he eventually published a journal on the voyage of the Beagle, which then made him a very prominent, well-known, popular author. After he returned to England, he continued analyzing all the information, the things he gathered, the fossils, the species, the birds and animals. Uh, he started researching, spending time with that, he wrote a number of papers, and uh, around 1838, around the age of 29, is when he conceived this theory of natural selection as he was processing all the information that he had collected over the period of five years on his voyage. 
And uh, he put out several publications, several papers, and several books, published several books. Some of his uh, more notable writings, of, of course, the first one is on the origin of species, which he uh, released on 22nd November 1859 at the age of 50. And uh, this book on the origin of species established evolutionary descent with modification as the dominant explanation for diversification in nature. He also then published several other books, including The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation of, to Sex in 1871, and The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals in 1872, and then he published other books after that that included a study on the movement of plants and uh, earthworms and their effective soil. What we must also keep in mind is that there were several influencers to Darwin's thoughts. His grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, he doesn't talk a lot about him, but his grandfather was a promoter of evolution as an idea. So Darwin had that influence already uh, to begin with. And another very important influence in his life, aside from all the other professors, all the other professors uh, for whom he interacted with at the University of Cambridge and so on, uh, was a man named Malthus and his writing on, the, uh, on an essay on the principle of population. Darwin says this, I quote, in October 1838, that is 15 months after I had begun my systematic inquiry, I happened to read for amusement Malthus on population, and being well prepared to appreciate the struggle for existence which everywhere goes on from long continued observation of the habits of animals and plants, it had once struck me that under these circumstances, favorable variations would tend to be preserved and unfavorable, unfavorable ones to be destroyed. The result of this would be the formation of new species. Here then I had at last got a theory by which to end. The point being that Darwin's conception of the theory of natural selection was not necessarily original to him, but it was, there was influence of his grandfather and then there was influence of other writers around his time. Now, let's summarize some of Darwin's key hypotheses. What did he present in his writings? Some of the key things here. In the book on the origin of species, which Darwin himself says was one long argument to disprove the existence of a creator. Interestingly, the writing on the origin of species presented a theory of descent with a modification through variation and selection was really a theological argument assimilating all the natural facts which he did gather and did collect on his journey. So, it was not necessarily a scientific document, so to speak, but an argument against creation. Our historian Neil Gillespie noted in 1979 that Darwin's theological defense of descent with modification rested on his conception of the Creator. Not only did his book have numerous references to such a Creator, but theological arguments based on such conception had importance in the overall logic presented in that book. Here's how he concludes his uh, On the Origin of Species. Darwin says, There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one. So he assumes that life was originally breathed into one or a few forms. That while this planet has gone cycling on according to the pixel of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. In his book on the descent of man and selection in relation to sex, published in 1871, Darwin set out evidence from numerous sources that humans are animals, showing continuity of physical and mental attributes between animals and humans. And he presented sexual selection to examine impractical animal features, as well as human evolution of culture, differences of between sexes, and physical and cultural and racial characteristics, while all the while emphasizing that all humans are one species. In his 1872 book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, 
he discussed the evolution of the human psychology, of the human psyche, and its continuity in behavior of animals. So relating animals to man at a psychological level. His conclusion is this, that man, with all his noble qualities, with sympathy, which feels for the most base, with benevolence, which extends not only to other men, but to the humblest living creature, with his godlike intellect, which has penetrated the movements and constitution of the solar system, with all these exalted powers, man still bears in his bodily frame the indelible stamp of his lowly origin. In his closing years, in 1879, when asked about his religious views, Darwin made it clear that he did not, he was not an atheist, he did not deny the existence of God, but he said an agnostic would be the more correct description of my state of mind. I also want to bring to our attention that prior to Darwin's uh, coming public with this theory of man's natural descent, that there were several ancient philosophers, historical philosophies, prior to Darwin, that in various forms proposed the process of evolution and tried to deny the existence of God. For example, in the 6th century BC, there was a Greek philosopher, Anaximander, who asserted that living things emerged from formless matter that underwent transmutations to produce a wide variety of forms. And many people who espouse the theory of evolution consider him as the original or the originator of evolutionary thought. In the 5th century BC, there were other Greek philosophers who uh, came up with different ideas that uh, charm, the chance interplay of earth, air, fire, and water produced disconnected organs and limbs. And these wandered about aimlessly until they all connected together to make whole creatures. In the 5th century, there were other Greek philosophers who advocated materialistic philosophy by denying the existence of God and said there's only atoms and void or emptiness. In the 1st century BC, there was a Roman philosopher, Lucretius, who actually proposed a theory of the survival of the fittest, which is remarkably similar to what Darwin wrote about. So, this is for us to understand that there was a lot of similar thought proposed before Darwin wrote his book on the origin of the species. So now I want to take some time just to make a very critical assessment of Darwin's primary propositions, four main things that he proposed in his writings. So was he right after all when we look back and assess the things he proposed. The first thing that Darwin proposed had to do with the geographic distribution of species. Now, as you and I understand the creation account, when after God had created the earth and the waters from the earth, God spoke and the whole earth responded. When God said, let there be plants, plants bloomed all over the earth. When God said, let the waters give forth, give, bring forth creatures, sea creatures, all water everywhere brought forth. So, according to the creation account, all of creation bloomed, blossomed everywhere instantaneously at the same moment. But here's what Darwin tried, this is what Darwin tried to disprove in his argument of the geographic distribution of species. What he said was this, that from his findings, it is highly probable, and I will kind of read some quotes a little later after summarizing what he said. From, he, from his finding, it is highly probable that all creatures originated from one common point of origin. And then they dispersed throughout the earth through one of two processes, either through migration or through the geological breakup of landmarks, which they formerly shared together, but now were separated because of the movements of the earth, and therefore had to adapt to whichever place they found themselves in. So putting forward this theory geographic distribution of species, he said, or he 
implied that the creation account of creating different species all around the world at the same moment does not hold. That was his point. Now let's go through some of his quotes very quickly. Here's what he said. He said, the view of each species having been produced in one area alone and having subsequently migrated from that from the area as far as the powers of migration and subsistence and the powers of present conditions permitted is the most probable. So he said, look, they almost have started in the same place and then migrated. Such cases, the quote continuing, such cases as the presence of peculiar species of bats on oceanic islands and the absence of all other terrestrial mammals are facts utterly inexplic inexplicable on the theory of independent acts of creation. The fact that you find, you know, only bats in a certain place, you know, find other things, disprove the fact that God created everything uh, in all, all places at the same time. He continues, he who admits the doctrine of the creation of each separate species we have to admit that a sufficient number of the beasts, best adapted plants and animals, were not created for oceanic islands, for man has stocked them far more fully than in nature. So why, it may be asked, has the supposed carnivores produced bats and no mammals on remote islands? So he's trying to explain, you know, why don't we find some things and not everything there? On my view, this question can easily be answered. For no terrestrial mammal can be transported across a wide space of sea but bats can fly across. So he says, because they have the capability to migrate, that's why you see this. So coming back, he says, this proves uh, the creation doctrine, creation account that we see. So according to geographic di distribution, there could be only two ways for animals or species to move from one location around the world. It's either through migration or because of widespread population being uh, dislocated due to climate or geological changes. But what do we actually find? Here's what we find, and here are just two examples. That the world, there is, there are many cases of geographic distribution for which neither the center of origin followed by migration or the widespread distribution because of fragmented barriers can explain. Here are two examples. The worldwide distribution of flightless birds or reptiles. You have the ostriches in Africa, the rias in South America, the emus in Australia, and the kiwis in New Zealand. Two points to note these are flightless birds, so they could not have migrated. Second point these birds are recent birds. They did not exist prior to what, we, what is known as the continental drift. So they could not have been dislocated and transposed or trans translated to different parts of the world because of a continental drift. Second example, freshwater crabs. And this was studied intensely by an Italian biolog biologist in the 1920s. Freshwater crabs complete their entire life cycle exclusively in freshwater habitat. They cannot survive in salt water. And what do we find? We find very similar species in lakes and rivers in Central and South America, in Africa and Madagascar, in Southern Europe, in India, Asia and Australia. And molecular evidence indicates that these animals originated once again after the continents separated, therefore contradicting distribution due to geolog geological dislocation. So once again, the facts contradict his proposed theory. So, instead of providing sufficient evidence to support his view, Darwin simply dismissed creation on the grounds that it is not a scientific explanation. A second area that we must examine is his, his use of fossils. Of course, Darwin in his travels uh, collected fossils, other fossils were sent to him by uh, researchers in other parts of the world, and he examined them, studied them, and then he proposed that the fact that you find fossils, that all these fossils really indicate a gradual evolution with many, many, many different species in between. And the fossils can be arranged in a sequence to reveal to us the descent of man through natural selection. The interesting thing that to keep in mind in Darwin's theory is this, that there is a period known as the Cambrian period, geological, the Cambrian period. All the fossils that have been found have come since 
within the Cambrian period, which is the geological Cambrian period. It is also known as the Cambrian explosion because there is this huge volume of fossils that all date back to time after the Cambrian period. So Darwin attempted to explain away the fact that we could not find huge fossils prior to this time by saying that during this time there existed species and, and lower life forms that could not endure being held in, in fossil form and could not endure erosion and degradation over time. He said that the pre-Cambrian organisms were too small or too soft to have fossilized in the first place. That was his idea to exclude the reason, to avoid, to, to explain the reason why there were no fossils before the Cambrian period. Here are some of his quotes. Darwin says, the great facts in paleontology, study of fossils, agreed mildly with the theory of descent with modification through variation and selection. He said, based on this theory, we can understand why the more ancient a form is, the more it is it generally differs from those living now. So you find a fossil that's really old, you can assume it's going to be very different from what you see now. And why ancient and distinct forms often tend to fill up gaps between existing forms. But such facts, he argued, are wholly inexplicable on any other view, such as a view that each layer of fossil marks a new and complete act of creation. So he says, these different fossils do not represent separate acts of creation, but they actually are a link in endless chain. By the theory of natural selection, he wrote that all living species have been connected with the parent species of each genus by differences not greater than we see between the natural and domestic variations of the same species at the present time. So there has to be a link behind each, and the difference should be as minimal as we see between natural and a domesticated version of an animal. That's the only difference we should see. So he says, thus in the past, the number of intermediate and transitional links between all living and extinct species must have been inconceivably great. But here's the problem. The American paleobiologist William Stoffer wrote in 1994, here's what he says, the long-held notion that pre-Cambrian organisms must have been too small or too delicate to have been preserved in geological materials is now recognized as incorrect. So, if there were pre-Cambrian an animals, species, the assumption that they were not behaved, they were not kept in fossilized form, is incorrect. If they existed, they should remain. According to the uh, Berkeley paleontologist James Valentine, he said the explosion is real, that is the Cambrian explosion of finding so many fossils around the same period, it is too big to be masked by flaws in the fossil record. So it turns out that the problem of fossil record is not that so many transitional forms are missing, but that fossils cannot provide evidence for descent with modification at all. In 1978, Garrett Nelson, the American Museum of Natural History wrote, he said the idea that one can go to a fossil record and expect to empirically recover an ancestral descendant sequence, be it of species, genera, families, or whatever, has been and continues to be a pernicious illusion. Henry G. was, uh, again, a man who has poused Darwin evolution. He was a nature science writer, but here's what he admits. He says, no fossil is buried with its birth certificate. We call new fossil discoveries missing links, as if the chain of ancestry and descent are a real object for our contemplation, and not what it really is. A completely human invention created after the fact shaped to accord with human prejudice. He concluded, to take a line of fossils and claim that they represent a lineage is not a scientific hypothesis that can be tested, but an assertion that carries the same validity as a bedtime story, amusing, perhaps even instructive, but not scientific. So the fossil record lacks the innumerable transition links as demanded by Darwin's theory, and even the few intermediate forms it contains cannot establish ancestral descendant or relationships. Number three, Darwin talked about vestigial organs. Now, he used the idea of vestigial organs once again to counteract the presence of an intelligent creator. Now, I'll just sum up what he said, and then we can look at some of his quotes, what 
essentially what he said is, the theological argument was, if there was an intelligent creator, God, then his design should also be intelligent. You should not find any law in his design. But the presence of vestigial organs, organs that don't really do much or do anything, indicate that there is no existence of an intelligent creator. That's his argument with vestigial organs. So here are his quotes. On the wheel of each organism with all its separate parts having been specially created, how utterly inexplicable is it that organs bearing the plain stamp of inutility should so frequently occur? On the view of this same modification, we may conclude that the existence of organs in a rudimentary, imperfect, and useless condition are quite aborted, far from presenting a strange difficulty, as they assuredly do on the old doctrine of creation, but even have been anticipated in accordance with views here and explained. So what he's saying is that evolution theory is the perfect explanation for what we call as vestigial organs. So in his book, In the Descent of Man, he uses the human appendix, the human appendix as an example saying that this is a vestigial organ and therefore it validates this theory of evolution or natural descent. But interestingly, many modern Darwinists continue to present this theological argument that finding such rudimentary non-utility vestigial organs indicate or validate the process of evolution. However, interestingly, the appendix, which was once thought to be functionless, is now known to be an important source of antibody-producing blood cells, and thus an integral part of the human immune system. It may also serve as a compartment for beneficial bacteria that are needed for normal digestion. So the conclusion is the appendix is not useless at all. So, the claim that vestigial organs provide evidence for Darwinism is basically a Darwin of the gaps theory. It collapses on two reasons. One, because under the weight of new evidence, what was once considered functionless, we understand have useful functions. And second, if Darwin is presenting a theological argument against the existence of an intelligent creator God, because of what he considers as flaws in creation, the Bible, biblical theology also affords an answer for less than perfect organs or things that are not perfect in our world today. The last thing about Darwin's theory is homology. Essentially, two things that you and I need to understand is that in organisms there, there are several similarities. Similarities of function is known as called analogy and similarity of st structure is called homology. So homology defines similarity of structure and position. Analogy, for example, would be butterflies have wings for flying and bats also have wings for flying, although they are constructed differently. Example of homology would be that the pattern of bones on a bat's wing is similar to that in a porpoise flipper, where the wing is used for flying and the flipper is used for swimming. So Darwin's argument is that homologies substantiate his theory of evolution. Because why would, again, similar to the vestigial organs argument, similar to what he says, why would an intelligent creator use the same design for different functions? That doesn't show intelligence, according to Darwin. And based on that, he argues against the existence of an intelligent creator God. Let me just read some of his quotes. He says, how inexplicable, he wrote, are homologies on the ordinary view of creation. For example, why should similar bones have been created to form the wing and leg of the bat used as they are for such totally different purposes? On the other hand, the similar framework of bones in the hand of a man, the wing of a bat, fill in the porpoise, and leg of the horse, at once explain themselves in the theory of descent with slow and slight modifications. He also argues the argument. Now, the important thing that you and I need to understand is that the normal approach of empirical science is not to argue against a theological view, but to propose a testable mechanism and explain it with evidence. So, neo-Darwinism, which kind of continued exploring that, 
through genetics and the abilities that we have to the cellular genes, had to face up with this argument. If it could be shown that homologous structures are produced by similar genes, and that non-homologous structures are produced by different genes, then we would have a scientific evidence that homology is due to common ancestry, which would then substantiate Darwin's theory of evolution. But biologists have known now for at least a decade that some homologous, homologous structures, such as the body segments of fruit flies and locusts, depend on different genes. And many non-homologous structures, such as the eyes of the octopus and the humans, or the legs of mammals and insects, depend on, on similar genes. So, our study of genetics immediately disproves what Darwin proposed in homology. In 1971, Gavin DeBeer wrote this, a researcher said this, he said, it might be thought that genetics would provide the key to the problem of homology. This is where the worst shock of all is encountered, because characters controlled by identical genes are not necessarily homologous, and homologous structures need not be controlled by identical genes. He concluded, the inheritance of homologous structures from a common, from a common ancestor cannot be ascribed to identity. So, to conclude our assessment of Darwin's hypotheses and theories that he put forward, essentially he relied heavily on this argument, which simply is that his theory is better than the doctrine of creation and therefore has to be subscribed to. He argued against what he thought a creator God should not have done. For instance, things like he said that a god, according to Darwin, would not have created species with characteristics that makes it so easily possible to classify them into species, genera, and other categories. According to Darwin, that if there, such there was an intelligent god, he would not have created extinct species that are geographically distributed the way they are. According to Darwin, such a god would not have created extinct species that appear in progressive pattern as in fossil records. A good designing God would not have created species with vestigial organs, according to Darwin. And a God would not have created species with similar structures performed. So, these things are wrong. Darwin essentially fabricated a God who did not exist. A deity who engaged only in arbitrary and unrelated acts of creation. And then, he wrote his books to argue against his own fictional God. But let's now talk about the God of the Bible. What do we know about the God of the Bible? The Bible tells us that the God of the Bible is an infinite being who always existed because he is self-existent. He is self-existent. Psalm 19 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He doesn't depend on anyone else or his existence. He is infinite. He's an infinite being. Psalm 147 verses 4 and 5 says, He counts the number of stars. He calls them by name. His understanding is infinite. In, Psalm, in Isaiah 40, God asks you, now, to whom will you liken me? With what, with what likeness will you compare me? Will you create me into a fictional being like Darwin? To whom will you liken me? With what shall I be equal? Asks the Holy One. And he says, lift up your eyes. Look at who created all these things. Who brings them out by number? He calls them by name. His greatness and his might and by his power not one of them goes missing. Then he says in verse 28, have you not heard, have you not known? God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint, he doesn't get tired, he doesn't lose his energy. And his understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is infinite. Point here is this, you need an infinite mind to fully understand an infinite God. Secondly, the Bible tells us that God created the universe. The Bible is very, very plain, doesn't need a lot of effort to read. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things were created, John says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. God made everything. Colossians says in verse chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that everything, absolutely everything above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank, after rank of angels, everything God started in him and finds his purpose in him. 
He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. God created this entire world. The Bible also tells us that God created everything in its initial mature form and then he entrusted it to man. He created it in its mature form. The Bible does not substantiate an evolutionary process, a theistic evolution. When God created the world and he created all the living creatures, they were in their mature form. Adam wasn't created a baby. But he entrusted it to man. And if we explore the biblical account of what happened since then, then we have an answer for some of the apparent flaws we find in the world around us. For God gives evidence to his existence by his grace. God is speaking to you and me every day, day and night, and saying, hello, I'm here. His creation is speaking to us. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 22 says this, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen and clearly visible, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise and good food. The Bible says that the creation, all of creation, is revealing to us the things we cannot see about God. They are speaking to us and saying, there is a mighty God, and we are without excuse. The mistake we have done is, in attempting to be wise, we only become fools. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the universe shows His handiwork. Every day, day unto day, they are speaking. Night after night, they are revealing His knowledge. There is no place or language and his voice is not heard. If you don't want to look up, just look at yourself. Because Psalm 139 says, You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Therefore, I will praise you. You are an evidence of the Creator God. The Bible, Bible's admonition is so strong, it says, The fool, in Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is. One of the greatest evidences of the existence of God is creation. That itself is a great evidence of the existence of God. I want you to watch a short video and I will conclude. Everyone knows our planets and sort of how we fit in to the story here. You see really quickly that we're not even the biggest deal in our own solar system, but as Earth comes by, you have to know tonight that we are living on a privileged planet. Anyone would tell you we're living in one of the most special places, if not the most special place in all of creation. But Neptune comes by and Saturn and then Jupiter and you're like, okay, we're not all that big, even our own little cul-de-sac. I just noticed the blue dot fading away is not the Earth. That's Neptune. The Earth has gotten too small to see anymore. Sirius comes by plug for satellite radio. Not the biggest star, but the brightest star that we have found so far. Pollux, which we didn't mention. Arcturus. Such a beautifully named one, Regal. But then the one that messed me up. Our third star, Musifi. Musifi's cousin, W. Sifi. But I'll tell you what happens to me. A shrinking feeling comes over me. And it's not a bad shrinking feeling. It's a good shrinking feeling. Because sin, it has a, a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. But just a glance into the universe that God has made resizes everything in a heartbeat. And you realize tonight we are worshiping an unrivaled, uncontested God of all kind of might and power and glory and awe who is, there's none like him anywhere in all of creation tonight. We are not here worshiping some little teeny tiny God. 
We are the teeny tiny ones, you and me. We are small and weak and fragile and frail. We are, you and me tonight, one of six and a half billion people on this little golf ball-sized planet in this massive universe that God has made. But I'll tell you the miracle of tonight is, is crazy and crazier to me than the size of any star is that though we are but a vapor, tiny and frail. We are marked by majesty. And we have been created in the very image of the God who breathes out the stars and put the universe into place. You and I are fashioned and formed and ordained by the God of all creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, you and I. And I'll tell you how you can know tonight that God will always hold you together. It's by looking a little deeper into the human body. And it's a little protein molecule called laminin. And that's about what I felt the first time I heard that. Long story short, the tour was winding down last time around. We were in Tyler, Texas. The night was over. A guy walks up to me. I wish I could tell you the whole story. It was so of God. Introduces himself to me. He says, how are you doing? I just want to say hello. I said, it's nice to meet you. He says, you guys winding the tour down. Uh, where are you going to go from here? I said, well, I'm on my way back home to Atlanta, Georgia. He said, well, what's next for you? I said, I'm going to be preaching the next two Sundays for my pastor back in Atlanta. He said, oh, cool. What are you preaching on? I said, well, the series is on the glory of God in the human body. He said, that's really amazing. I'm a molecular biologist at the university down the road. Give me your talk. And I was like, oh, wow, I wasn't quite yet ready to unload the talk for a molecular biologist. So I kind of stumbled through what I had, and he's kind of being kind and gracious and like, uh-huh, that's good. And then he says, well, what's your big left hook? you got to have a left hook, a big finish, right? I said, I don't have a left hook yet. He said, oh, Louie, oh, man, your left hook is laminin. And I'm, I'm totally blank on laminin. He goes, Louie, it's a cell adhesion molecule. Protein molecule? Do you know about proteins? I'm like, no. He said, Louis, cells organize into certain molecular structures, and that determines what protein there are. There are between 10 and 60,000 proteins in the human body. We don't even know how many proteins are in the human body. But one of them is a cell adhesion molecule. It's organized into this certain structure, and that tells the cell what its job is in the body. And this one is a cell adhesion molecule. And I'm like... All right. He said, no, Louis. it's like the rebar of the human body. The steel they put in the concrete when they lay the foundations of things, it's that stuff. It's, it's holding your membranes together. It's the glue of the human body, Louie. It's laminate. You've got to tell them about laminate. And I'm like, I promise you, I'm going home and tell them about laminate. And I'm sure when I do, revival is going to sweep across the church and probably around the world when I tell them. He said, no, 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 you've got to see laminate. Okay, let's see it. He said, no, 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 you need to go look it up online. You need to go Google laminin. I don't even know how to spell laminin. <laughs> takes his card out, he writes on the back, L-A-M-I-N-I-N. Okay, I cannot wait to get to my computer, get on Google, click on images, type in laminin, and I'm waiting, and these little thumbnails come up on the screen, and I'm like,
I'm like, how crazy is that? That the stuff that holds our bodies together, that's holding the lining of your organs together, holding your skin on, is in the perfect shape of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately I'm thinking about the words of Paul in Colossians 1. You know this beautiful passage where Paul's talking about the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. He says, for by him, talking about Jesus Christ, all things have been created. Things in heaven and things on earth. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. But then the next verse goes on to say this. It's crazy. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, that is, in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. It's right, it's right there. I'm like, of course they do. Of course they do. Everything holds together in Jesus Christ. And he goes on at the end of this paragraph, and he just tells the story of grace. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Just a little journey through our solar system. Everyone knows our planets or how we fit in the story here. You know, an atheist says, there is no God. But in saying that, he immediately has made the assumption that he, as a man, has infinite knowledge. Because only if you have infinite knowledge can you make a claim saying, I've searched through all my infinite knowledge and I have not found God. So the next best option is what Darwin did, is to be an agnostic and say, I don't know if there is a God. So an agnostic says, I don't know there is a God. So there is no God. But this morning, I want to tell us that God has given us enough evidence. All of creation, regardless of which part of the world you're in, regardless of which language you speak, God is speaking through His creation and saying, Hello, I'm very much here. Your own body, the human body, is telling you there is a creator who's assigned you, fashioned you with extreme intelligence and wisdom. Bertrand Russell was a, an atheist who, who had many, many followers. And at one point, he was asked, what would he do if he didn't meet God after he died? But just in case, you did. His answer was that, I would tell God that you did not give me enough evidence. I hope you would not walk out of this place with that same mind. Because God has given all of us enough evidence. In the infiniteness of the universe, we see that there is an infinite God. While all of this intellectual stuff is good, interesting, I think the greatest thing to me is not all this analysis, but I think the greatest thing to me personally is what happened to me. And a 12-year-old boy, just before my 13th birthday, when suddenly the God, this infinite, immensely infinite God, became personal. He became intensely intimate. I knew that I was not morally perfect. I knew that I didn't know all about God. God was infinite for my 13-year-old mind to comprehend and grasp. And yet... I knew that I knew, I knew that I had a relationship. My reason could never enable my mind to get a grip on God, but it was at the realm of relationship that I began to experience an infinite And this is the beauty of God, that though He is so infinite, so limitless, Yet, he is intensely intimate. He's a very personal God. And the challenge for you and me is not to try to get a grip on God through reason, but to come to him on the basis of relationship. Because it's going to require an infinite mind to fully comprehend an infinite God. You will never get there. 
But if you come to him on the realm of relationship and say, God, I want to know you. I want to be able to relate to you. That will help you get to know an infinite God. The psalmist put it like this. He said, you know, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you created, and what is man that you're mindful of? You even think about it. That's exactly what God does. The biggest challenge to having and knowing God relationally then is our moral condition. It's the fact that we are sinners. We have fallen short of, of, of who God is and uh, to whom we can relate to. Our sin intercepts us from having a relationship with God. What really touched me as a 13 year old is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and that because of his death and his resurrection, the fact that Jesus is alive, by believing in him, my sins could be removed away and I could now have a relationship with God. And that's what I want to present to you today. Maybe you walked in as an atheist with a mind, an atheistic mind. Maybe you walked in with an agnostic mind. I hope you will not leave that. I hope you will leave as somebody who knows God. And it is possible through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that everyone who received Jesus, to them he gives the power to become the children of God. He brings them into such an intimate relationship with God where you know God, not as a force, a being, but as Father. You become His Son. And that can happen right now. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.